From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We're closing in on a year since our world was turned upside down by the coronavirus pandemic. One of the things that changed the most and has been the most challenging is how we educate our kids. It's been incredibly difficult for students, teachers, and parents in many ways. Schools in Oregon and Washington are working hard to find a way to get students back in the classroom safely, to eventually move from the online world back to the real world. In this episode of Straight Talk, we hear from the heads of the departments of education in both Oregon and Washington on what that looks like, what's been lost during the last several months, and how do we help our students achieve success in the future? We'll talk with the Washington State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Rakedahl, in our next segment. First, I'm pleased to welcome Oregon Department of Education Director Colt Gill. Welcome back to Straight Talk. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Lauren. I'm happy to be here. Director Gill, in a December 23rd letter, the governor said she wants to get students back in the classroom, especially elementary students, by February 15th, as safely as possible. How important do you think that mission is? Yeah, thank you. I think it is critically important. I do want to call out that the governor um, really emphasized that we continue to follow the science and the evidence um, to find the safest ways to return our students back to in-person instruction. Um, we really need to consider the stability of their education uh, and and the safety and uh, of sorry the safety of students and staff in this setting. And on that note, this week, your department released new guidelines for returning to in-person learning based on that letter from the governor. And those guidelines are now advisory, not mandatory. And they give local school districts and schools control over when and how to return to class. And it lowers the threshold for community case rates to allow elementary students to return to class. Tell us about how community outreach played a part in creating these guidelines. Yeah, so when, the, when Governor Brown sent the letter to um, the directors of the Oregon Health Authority and the Department of Education and myself, um, she did call out two things that she wanted to have happen. So on January 1st, we changed the guidance so that um, local school districts had control to um, think about those metrics in an advisory way, um, to take them into account, but also look at more localized data if they, if they could do that with their local public health authority and consider the community spread in their, in their city or in their school environment. Um, we also uh, asked, were asked to review the guidance, which is something that we've done about every eight weeks. So this was right on target for that. When we worked with our partners at the Oregon Health Authority, the state epidemiologist, we reviewed studies like the Harvard Global Health Institute, um, which looked like you could, uh, with the kind of protocols that Oregon has in place in the rest of Ready Schools Safe Learners Guidance, about 160 um, different requirements to ensure that we're doing everything we can to mitigate transmission at the school site, that we could allow more elementary students um, or allow elementary students into our school setting when there was greater community spread. So we followed those guidelines. A few other states have done so as well, Colorado and Washington among them. Well, we've had a lot of teachers tell us those guidelines to return to in-person learning seem rushed to them, and many don't feel it's safe to go back into the classroom. What do you say to them? 
Well, we have um, a lot of evidence here in Oregon. So some, some of our schools in Oregon have been operating since September. We've had on average about 60,000 students um, going to school on a daily basis here in Oregon. And that's true in, in many other states as well, where they've had some percentage of students that are in in-person instruction. What we know is that when we have really strong protocols in place that include diligent entry screening, where we're checking for symptoms, um, where we have uh, strong physical um, distancing rules, where we uh, require everyone to wear face coverings, where we have cleaning and sanitizing and frequent hand washing, uh, that when we have those kinds of things in place, we're not seeing transmission at the school site. And so we do feel like uh, we can do a lot to reduce um, the spread of COVID-19 in the school environment, um, even when there is significant community spread where those rules may not be followed in the, you know, in the general community. Another big concern is mental health. This pandemic has taken a terrible toll on our children and their mental health. Governor Brown has said that weighed heavily on her decision to encourage schools to reopen. We talked to an eighth grader, Melanie, and her mom, who opened up about that struggle. Let's listen. Depression is very invisible, and it's kind of hard to tell whether somebody is struggling or not. So it might look like someone's doing fine with distance learning and that they're totally okay with it, but they could be struggling and you just don't know. If we don't find like a solution soon, it, we're going to lose a lot of kids. Like I, I know lots of people who have lost their children this year and I fight every day to keep mine alive. So someone really needs to do something about this. And Melanie is just one example of many similar stories we're hearing from students and their parents. I'm sure, Director Gill, hearing stories like hers have to, to worry you and are top of mind for you. Is there more of a state could do to help our students, especially when they go back to class? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that kind of a story is, um, it's really disheartening to hear. Um, we do take uh, in data at the Oregon Health Authority on um, depression and suicide and, and those kinds of events here in the state of Oregon. And we haven't seen an increase. I do want to make that clear um, in that data. But, but that data is also really difficult to collect. And one of the things that is um, clearly missing for our students right now is the same kinds of peer interactions that they had and the same kinds of regular interactions that they have had with their um, teachers. We have seen a decrease in the number of um, uh, child abuse reports because our teachers play such an integral role in being that other trusted adult in a child's life. And so we really um, have taken a lot of steps to uh, uh, provide our um, schools and our teachers with the kinds of resources they need to better support students when they're in distance learning and when they return. So just um, two weeks ago, we released a new mental health toolkit on the um, Oregon Department of Education website um, for school staff that is really centered around a, a culturally specific approach to um, building resiliency in students and to recognize those early signs um, like those folks in, in your interview just shared that it's sometimes hard to tell if somebody is experiencing depression, especially when right now so many of us are spending many hours a day in front of a screen trying to connect um, with either school or work in that way. It's harder to see some of those signs. And so, um, so this mental health toolkit will help with that. Because a lot of teachers are saying that they don't feel equipped to be able to deal with some of those mental health issues when they go back. So you're saying there'll be more wraparound services to help them? There'll be, there's more training to help teachers um, specifically and some information in the toolkit. We also have, through this latest effort of the um, 
from the federal level uh, a new support fund from coronavirus relief funds that will bring in about $500 million uh, to K-12 schools that they can use through the remainder of this school year and beyond. Um, it names a few things as a priority. One of those is mental health. Another one is um, addressing learning loss. Um, so it offers um, school districts the opportunity to add things like a summer school or a fifth term. And the final one, the final additional item that it adds in is um, around airflow and ventilation and trying to support schools in making sure their buildings are actually ready to support um, learning in person. We're taping this on Thursday afternoon, and today the Oregon Department of Education released the latest graduation rates for 2020, the COVID year, and the news appeared good. The statewide graduation rate for the class of 2020 was 82.6%, the highest ever compared to 2019, which was 80%. What does that say to you, Director Gill? Uh, a couple of things. So one, we're, we're really proud. This is a continuation for us of uh, many years of year after year growth. Um, over the last six years, um, we have seen an increase of 10.6 points, um, percentage points higher than we were just six years ago. Um, so this is a continuation of that. And the way that it's happening, I think, is as important as anything. So we're beginning to close gaps for um, student groups that have been historically marginalized and underserved in our school districts um, in the state of Oregon. So we saw um, uh, rates from our African-American black students that outpaced the state average, um, from our Latino and Hispanic students that outpaced the state average, from our students who experienced disability also significantly outpaced the state average, which meant we're closing the gaps and those are the groups that are driving our education, our graduation rates higher. So really exciting news. It does seem to be good news and we give a big round of applause for our class of 2020 who persevered through tremendous difficulties. But couldn't it be that we won't see the true toll on graduation rates until future years with younger kids now when they graduate, they've endured a much longer time with remote learning and during their formative years. Yeah, um, so important to recognize the perseverance of that class of 2020. Um, they were the first ones to be hit by this uh, pandemic and at a time when all of us were just beginning to learn about it, they lost some of those um, milestones that many of our classes get, like a prom, um, like graduation ceremonies that were done in very different ways last spring. Um, but you're also correct that the students who were in high school now, so 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade, these students have been in it longer. Um, we are beginning to understand from school districts that we have students who are experiencing higher levels of course failures. They're not earning the credits that are keeping them on track towards graduation. Um, we uh, have also developed some new tools for our school districts to help them create equitable grading policies, which is one of the things we did as a state last year under um, state guidance. This year, that has returned to local control, um, but we do need our districts to take a look at those their grading practices and make sure that they are really designed to serve students in comprehensive distance learning who may have trouble, um, more trouble engaging than they do when we're in regular um, school day to day. Director Gill, will there be an effort to measure, to evaluate any academic gap the coronavirus crisis might have created? Yeah, absolutely. We know our school districts are doing that now. Um, they are working also with education service districts and meeting as teams across districts to understand um, what kind of learning loss is happening. Um, as the state of Oregon, we implemented a new interim assessment model um, that is available to every school district so that they can measure um, instead of what 
what is typical in states is that we have an annual summative assessment that happens one time a year. It's a rather long test. Um, and you would compare a student um, one year to their progress the next year. Instead of doing that, we've offered this um, interim model where they can uh, provide shorter assessments that are easier for students to access multiple times a year and measure gains towards uh, our state standards. Just 30 seconds left, Director Gill. Do you have a final thought you'd like to share? No, I, I think that my final thought is, um, you know, so many people, our educators, our um, parents, um, our students are all working really hard. This is all our first time through a pandemic. We're all finding our way through it. And just to continue to hold grace and patience for one another, everybody, whether they're for returning to in-person instruction or whether they, they believe it's safer to remain in distance learning are all really looking at what they believe is best for our children. And so to hold that in your heart as you have those discussions with one another, they're going to be very challenging discussions at school board meetings across the state of Oregon. Um, and my hope is that people will truly hear one another and find those pathways to do the best they can to serve their children. Thank you, Director Gill, for joining us here on Straight Talk and good luck in the coming months. And next up, we welcome the head of public school education in the state of Washington, Superintendent Chris Rakedahl. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Stray Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We're talking schools and the future of education for our kids. We heard from the director of the Oregon Department of Education in our first segment. Now we get to talk with the state school's chief in Washington, State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Rakedahl. Welcome to Stray Talk. It's nice to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Superintendent Governor Inslee relaxed the state's school reopening benchmarks earlier this month and some Vancouver area schools are moving forward with a plan for hybrid learning for elementary schools and parents can still decide if they want their kids to stay at home at the same time. What can you tell us about the statewide plan and how it's going? Well, it's definitely expedited since the governor's announcement. Uh, we've had a lot of districts with a plan already to bring back early grades, often kindergarten through maybe second or third grade. Uh, that's sped up quite a bit. I think the new information, of course, is that uh, there's a new uh, White House really focused on the vaccine. And a lot of folks are wondering, does the reopening align well with, with mass vaccine? We've been really clear in our state, you don't need a vaccine to open schools safely with the protocols we have. Uh, but I know a lot of folks are thinking now about how that timing lines up. Well, we'd all sure like to see the vaccine soon for everybody. You know, this has been such a tough time for parents, students, and teachers. You were once a history teacher in Longview, and I understand a soccer coach. You're also a parent of two teenage students in public schools. So you've seen firsthand the struggles that kids have been going through with remote learning. And you talked about it at a legislative hearing last fall. Let's listen. I've got a son failing two classes. He's never failed in his life. He's taken AP classes all three years. He's struggling like hell right now, because this is a system to teach a kid in right now. This instructional model does not work for a lot of kids, period. At one time, if you'd said that in school, you might have been sent to the principal's office, but I think probably what you said, that's how a lot of parents are feeling frustrated. How tough has remote learning been and has the model worked? Yeah, yeah, you know, with respect to that, I mean, obviously I'm a parent and I always try to lead with my full, you know, sort of comprehensive self on this stuff. You know, what I've tried to make clear in that and other remarks is just how complicated the system is right now for kids. And a lot of them, they really struggle with this. And it isn't particularly the content learning, 
it's how much isolation that occurs and the lack of interaction with their peers and immediate response at times that often comes in a classroom. When an educator delivers a lesson plan and walks around or students are working in teams together, we've tried to replicate as much of that as we can in remote learning models and we have teachers across the state who are working so hard to make that work well, but it just doesn't work well for some students. It's not how they uh, thought their experience would go. The best universities in the world don't use remote learning as their default model. Uh, they, they brag about in-person instruction and small class sizes. And so uh, when you think about what we've all gone through over the last year, it's really tough. And a lot of students are struggling with it. Uh, they're doing their best. Our educators are absolutely doing the best job that they can. It's just not a long-term sustainable model, which is why we're prioritizing getting back into school as quickly as we can, as safely and sustainably as we can. Well, from what you've seen and heard, how much has remote learning affected students' mental health? You talked a little bit about that and the isolation. What are the plans in Washington to address students' mental health needs, especially as they head back into the classroom? Yeah, you know, that is a lagging indicator in some ways for us from a data standpoint. So we're going to get really good data uh, here very quickly on grades, particularly in high school. Um, I think we have a really good sense that, um, you know, this worked well for some, didn't work well for a lot of others. Um, the mental health issues are certainly more anecdotal. Uh, they're more uh, about that sense we all have as parents and community members and seeing this in our kids. And uh, again, not universal, but, but certainly more risk than there was prior. We don't have great data on it yet, but I suspect that will come in. We know it enough, however, to ask our school districts, uh, really required them in their reopening plans to address uh, not just academic learning loss, not just content knowledge that students may be struggling to uh, missing out on, but also their social emotional well-being. And there are tools that actually allow us to do that. And, and great educators infuse those all the time in their work. But we, we are asking our districts to be more intentional about that. We know there's uh, quite a bit of money we've sent already through federal aid to districts. And there's a very large amount of money coming to all the states uh, in the next couple of weeks. And again, <clears throat> they'll have enough resource there to really dive into those uh, recovery supports, evaluating student mental health needs, and then putting meaningful interventions in place, both remotely while we're still here, but then especially as kids return to buildings. You've had some good news about the graduation rate in Washington. We talked about it in our first segment. Oregon's is at a record high, and it is in Washington, too. In 2020, the four-year rate in Washington was nearly 83%. But you've said, uh, Superintendent, that's not good enough for all students. Now is not the time to think simply about getting back to normal, but rather a time for transformation for K-12 through learning. And I know you have a detailed vision for the future. Tell us some of the top priorities. Yeah, you know, we're, we're really proud that we're approaching 83% for your graduation. It's about 85% after five years. We have an incredible community technical college system that helps get, you know, almost 90% of students in Washington, ultimately the high school diploma or equivalent. But that's still 10% of our students who never achieved that benchmark. And it is just an absolute must in this contemporary economy. So we think a lot now about pathways. We're thinking about what does it mean to redesign the entire high school experience, particularly the last two years of high school. So it isn't just two more years of what we've always done. It shouldn't just be two more years of seat time and more credits taken in the same old sort of model that everyone's in. For 60, 65% of our students, uh, they need a really rigorous academic system because they intend to go to a college or university. But for 35, 40%, sometimes more of our students, they're looking to enter the workforce or apprenticeship programs or military service or technical training and candidly across the country, not just in our state, we don't really design high school systems for them at scale. Now there's a few programs here and there, uh, but most of it is still very geared to every student on a traditional academic path. 
Uh, we think we can do better. We're tasking uh, our districts and asking our legislature to help us redesign those last two years, open up pathways, still gonna have rigorous math and science and English language learning and other things. Uh, but we can do that in contextual programs where students spend time in technical programs or at work and partly uh, in employment while they're doing that. So we all need to reimagine uh, public education in this country and, and high school is a really great place to start because we have so many willing employers right now who want to uh, work with our young people. And you also want to see what's called a balanced school calendar, something that I, I've heard when I was growing up as year-round school. What are the advantages of that? Yeah, let's definitely qualify that. So we don't want to get rid of all of summer, that's for sure. But balancing it means you take your same instructional day, which is about 180 days a year. That's really common across every state and almost every country. And you stretch it out a little more. So not 11 or 12 week break in the summer, but maybe six or seven weeks on the traditional summer break. But you have longer breaks or more of them throughout the year. Teachers we believe need this because they are jamming in a full-time 1700 1800 hour uh, work life in a in 180 days uh, the rest of us get an entire year for that level of workload so it's burning out a lot of educators we think we can do a better job giving them a chance to reflect on their practice evaluate student learning more effectively certainly give our families a chance to take bigger breaks along the way it's different uh, but if it has the impact we believe in the research, we'll reduce significantly summer learning loss. And that compounds over time. Every year, kids make steps forward and then they regress a little bit in the summer. And if you add up all that summer learning loss over 12 or 13 years of school, it's very significant. And any, uh, we think we better. Uh, any transformation would have to be approved by the Washington legislature, right? Your office can't do this on its own. How frustrating is that for you? Well, our districts could bargain uh, stretched out calendars right now. There just isn't a lot of incentive for them to do that. So it would be really helpful for the legislature to make this a priority. Uh, in some places, it'll cost a little more money and we wanna recognize that, but we would love for the legislature to nudge this at a minimum with pilots right now, uh, or at least a timeline out there where they expect districts to achieve a balanced calendar. We know it's gonna need a lot of lead time. Uh, we're, we're pushing with the research and the policy and the supports it would be great to have a legislative partner that says we, we, we get it and it's time after 200 years of public school in this country to get off the agrarian calendar. You have a middle school age daughter and you watched her last volleyball game before school shut down last March. Do you think we'll be able to get back to those days anytime soon? <laughs> I do. Um, our athletic association in this state has just worked really, really hard to create some seasons for our students, um, our athletes starting here in February. And, and I do believe that will go really well. Big emphasis on outdoor activities, of course, where it's safer, where they can distance more, <clears throat> probably some restrictions on the numbers and volumes of parents that can watch, especially in indoor spaces. So it won't look the same, but I do believe we're, we're back to some athletics here soon. And, and certainly by next fall, I think we're going to have a big, big opportunity. We have about a minute and a half left. Have you been described as a, a public education optimist? Do you still feel that way? I do. Um, public ed is really the thing that constantly elevates this country. Uh, we thought of it as, you know, really third grade for a long time, and then it was first through sixth grade, and then we added on middle school. <clears throat> Eventually, kindergarten got added on. Eventually, we got past that, so you really need a high school diploma. Every 30 or 50 years in this country, we re-embrace public ed and, and the ability for it to create equity and opportunity. And now is that time as well. We think universal access to early learning, all three and four year olds should have access to high quality learning. That includes dual language, by the way. Um, these are the kinds of optimistic things that just keep compelling our country to be excellent. 
uh, but we've got to embrace it with equity, give the opportunity equally and not make it a privatized system where some can access it and some cannot. <clears throat> so I'm always hopeful. We have great educators who love to teach and students who are curious. And if we focus on them, uh, we're going to be in really good shape. Just about 20 seconds for a final thought that you'd like to leave with Washingtonians. Well, it's tough. We're all in it together. And, you know, we've heard this a lot lately, but um, the numbers are kind of uh, through the roof right now. And what we try to remind folks is the research and the data says that our schools can be very safe, even with high community spread when we follow our protocols. So we encourage school openings safely and sustainably. We know that vaccine will really accelerate things, but we don't have to be prevented. So much more to talk about, Superintendent Rinkdahl. I hope you'll come back soon. Thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk. And thank you for watching and listening. Remember to download our podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Search for KGW Straight Talk. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk. Have a great week.